0: If you don't have a copy of the scriptures, uh, there is a Bible in the chair in front of you, likely, and if you would open that Bible to page 230, you can join us as we begin our new adventure through the book of 1 Samuel. This morning we find ourselves in chapter 8, and <clears throat> before we get into the text, I want to talk to you about something a little bit more temporal, Apple, the company, has done something for which we should all be grateful. In case you didn't know this and you're an Android person, I'm sorry. But um, Apple has now created the software on the phone that allows you to edit a text after you've sent it. You know what that means? All your poor grammar and poor spelling, you can correct it. You could clarify your point. Oh, I didn't mean that, I meant this. Or you could correct series poor transcription. And the person will receive the message that you have edited, the message the way you intended it to be. However, Apple still is powerless to help you when you are texting a friend to complain about somebody else and you accidentally text that person. (laughs) Has that ever happened to you? I mean, it's a big oops, right? In that moment... You're exposed. They know exactly what you think about the decision you've made or about the dress that you wore or whatever it was, and there is no hiding that. I think today's passage is very similar to that. It is a passage that shows us our hearts. It exposes us. It's uncomfortable where we find ourselves in 1 Samuel chapter 8. So please follow along as I read from God's word. When Samuel became old, he made his sons judges over Israel. The name of his firstborn was Joel, and the name of his second, Abijah. They were judges in Beersheba. Yet his sons did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after gain. They took bribes and perverted justice. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together, and they came to Samuel at Ramah, and they said to him, Behold, you are old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. But this thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord, and the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people and all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them, according to all the deeds that they have done, from the day I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods. So they are also doing to you. Now then, obey their voice, only you shall solemnly warn them and show them The ways of the king who shall reign over them. So Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking for a king from him. He said, These will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots, and to be his horsemen, and to run before his chariots. And he will appoint for himself commanders of thousands, and commanders of fifties and some to plow his ground and to reap his harvest and to make his implements of war and the equipment of his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards and give them to his servants. He will take the tenth of your grain and of your vineyards and give it to his officers and to his servants. He will make or take your male servants and female servants and the best of your young men and your donkeys and put them to his work. He will take the tenth of your flocks, and you shall be his slaves. And in that day you will cry out because of your king whom you have chosen for yourselves, but the Lord will not answer you on that day. But the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel. And they said, No, but there shall be a king over us, that we may also be like all the nations, and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. And when Samuel had heard all the words of the people, he repeated them in the ears of the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey their voice and make them a king. Samuel then said to the men of Israel, Go every man to his city. This ends the reading of God's holy and inspired word. And may he write its truths upon our hearts. This passage, you see it right there. It's, it's a conversation, a little bit of a back and forth. Verses 1 through 9, there's a situation in the first few verses that prompt Israel's elders to come to Samuel. They demand a king. Samuel's offended by this request. He goes to the Lord and surprisingly to Samuel's ears, God says, do it. Only you're going to tell them what it's going to cost them. And in verses 10 through 18, Samuel lays it all out for him. This guy will be a tyrant. He will take from you. The people are insistent. No, 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 Samuel. We want a king. Twice they mention that they want to be just like the nation around them. <clears throat> Samuel obeys the Lord, and as he dismisses them at the end of verse 22, go every man to his city means not to say, I'm done with you, I'm out of this. It's, it's a sign of Samuel saying, this is going to take time. We're going to do this right. Go home. So what we see in this passage, I think, is going to be challenging for us is three thoughts, as it were, three realities that show us how this passage kind of exposes us and our hearts. First is in verses 1 through 9. It's, it's this idea. We may find ourselves at a place and time where we're ready for a change, but on our terms. notice, Samuel's age and his sons present a real problem for Israel in the first five verses. Their solution to this problem, with their aging judge and their corrupt judges, sons of his, that they will create a new type of government, a monarchy. What's ironic is Joel's name means the Lord is God. Abijah's name means my father is the Lord. But they act anything other than their names suggest. They turned aside after gain, they took bribes and perverted justice. They failed to emulate their father <clears throat> or their God. Moses repeatedly in the law, condemned some of the most practical kinds of perversions of justice that one can imagine. The most common ways to pervert justice is to show favoritism. It is to distort truth to the ends of greedy gain. And this is all over in the law. Moses says this is not to be done by Israel's judges. And ironically, what we see here is a really sobering reality of a family who mirrors a family that went before him. Do you remember Eli's sons? Ironically, in their own way, Samuel's sons were just as wicked as Eli's were. I mean, there's a lot to be said about parenting is not... It's not a recipe, right? Godly parents don't automatically produce godly offspring. In fact, our theology tells us godly parents produce sinners. That's the offspring we produce. It's God's grace that produces his offspring and brings about redemption. But there's as good as you can be as a parent, there's not a guarantee that your children are going to turn out To love the Lord their God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. We pray to that end. We lead them to Jesus. We pray that God's spirit will open their hearts and they will fall in love with him. But we see here a sobering reminder that there is no guarantee. Samuel's upset, but he goes to the Lord and he learns that God has not rejected him, but the Lord. The king that they're demanding, Samuel, is not a substitute for you, but for me, God says. In fact, he says in verse uh, 8, 9, this is the way they've been treating me ever since I brought them out of Egypt. Now, it's clear Israel's elders thought Samuel was the guy to do this. They respected his leadership. They came to him. They weren't trying to circumvent him. But their motivation is wrong. And we might be sympathetic to them. I mean, Samuel's old. They made that very clear, didn't they? You like how blunt that was? Hey, now, you're old. and your sons are wicked. Do this for us. We might be sympathetic if we didn't know Israel's history, because this desire for a king is not a new one. Let me just walk you through a couple little cliff notes for you. Israel tried to make Gideon the king after he fought against the Midianites in Judges 8. He rightly said, no, 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 no. God is your king. But one of his sons would later kill 70 of his brothers. So even though Gideon said, God's your king, he basically acted like a king and had a lot of wives and 70 offspring. That's not from one woman, I'll just tell you that. So Abimelech kills his brothers. He declared himself king over Ephraim in Judges 9. Later, another judge named Jephthah was made king over Gilead. That's the tribes that were on the east side of the Jordan. In Judges 10. More importantly, within the context that we have here in 1 Samuel 8, we see that God exposes the heart of these people. They have rejected me from being king over them. And they've done deeds like this from the very day I brought them up from Egypt. Now, what does this show us about the human nature? I mean, chapter 7 in our Bibles is just a page away from chapter 8, but this is decades away in reality. And yet, when difficulties came, Israel responded correctly in chapter 7. They cried out to God for help, and God rescued her. But in chapter 8, as Israel foresees what will be a tenuous future... Is, uh, Samuel's old age and his son's wickedness they don't do the same thing again we're ready for change but the kind of change we want is change according to our terms they demand that Samuel give them a king instead of saying Samuel can you go to our king and tell us what's next ask God to help us to know his plans for the future And I wonder how often do we approach our problems rationally rather than spiritually? And there's no denying Samuel was old. There's no denying his son's corruption. There's no denying that a transition of leadership was about to take place. These are facts that are indisputable. But did they think about them spiritually or just logically? Do we do that? Even as Israel is rebuked and warned about the path that they are pursuing in verses 10 through 18, they refuse to repent, as seen in verse 19 and 20. Their demand grew more insistent. No, Samuel, but there shall be a king over us. We will not listen to your word, Samuel. You must listen to ours. Paul would write about this in Romans 1, verses 21 and 22. They exchanged the glory of their creator for a cheap substitute. For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him. But they came futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for mortal man. You would give up God as your ruler to have a human? I mean, this is, this is the reality. They were ready for change, but on their terms. We know that they've done this before. They did it with a golden calf in the wilderness. Just a few chapters ago, they did it with the Ark of the Covenant. That was their substitute instead of God. Now they're trading not the Ark, but a God for a man. And once again, Israel has substituted technique for trusting God. Christian, how often do we tell God what to do rather than listen to him? And we dictate to him. This is the situation I'm facing, God. You must do these things this way, in this time, and in this manner. And what that really reveals about our hearts is that we're not trusting our maker. Maybe we're tired of needing God, and it's kind of like the training wheels. Dad, take them off. I'm not a baby anymore. Get rid of the training wheels. I don't need the help. And we treat God like that. we want an easier path forward instead of going to god and waiting on him just laid out let's do this and it's so much faster so much more efficient now what ought to terrify us is that sometimes when we make our problems and approach our problems and make our demands on god and we're we're responding rationally rather than spiritually is that god actually does give us the desires of our hearts Romans 128, again, and since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. By getting what we want, we wrongly assume that God's okay with it. If he didn't want me to have it, he wouldn't have let me have it. If God didn't want this relationship to form, then he, he would have just blown it up earlier. And we begin to lay blame on God for giving us the desires of our hearts when it's our stubbornness rather than God. We fail to realize how demanding we have been. So when God allows us to experience the sinful desires of our hearts, it leads to our ruin. You think of Israel in the wilderness. We are so sick and tired of this man, our Lord. Like, seriously? Now... I'm not a big honey guy, but I know a lot of you are, and honey is really good and sweet. And so that manna that they got was supposed to be like a honey wafer. It was supposed to be delicious, light, flaky, all the good things. You could make great stuff, great biscuits out of it. And they said, we're done with this heavenly food. We want some meat. So he gives them quail. You remember that story? Even while the meat is in their mouth, God strikes them down for their rebellion and disobedience. He brought death. So 1 Samuel, verses 7 and 9 of chapter 8 here, hint at this foreboding future for Israel. We can also read the situation wrong. No doubt Israel was afraid of losing security that God had given them. They've experienced decades of peace with the Amorites. They had a victory that really pushed the Philistines out of their territory. God had created a normalcy in their lives that they saw as being jeopardized when Samuel died. So in their logic, in their reasoning, they're saying, here's a practical solution, Samuel. When you're no longer on the scene, a king would do all that. He could be a judge for us, and he could be a military leader. God reveals the problem. These people have rejected me as their king. Hey, Samuel, let me just tell you something. They're treating you just like they treated Moses before you. Samuel, they're treating you just like they'll treat the prophets after you. They are rejecting me as their king. So Christian, let me just encourage you this way. Instead of looking for change according to your terms, commit your life to the Lord's will and not your own. Maybe, just maybe, instead of demanding that God does what we want him to do, maybe we should pray and ask that his will be done. He may choose a different path, quite different from our own understanding. He is gracious and he is wise. His ways will be better than the ends of our sinful desires. For a couple years, We had been praying as a church in Anderson, Indiana that God would do a work that only he could do, that he would convert people, that he would call this church to greater faithfulness, that he would use us for the sake of the kingdom, that we would grow and flourish. And you know what? How God chose to answer those prayers? By closing the church. He chose to put his sheep in new pastures. He led our family here to South Canyon. God is good, Christian. His ways are higher than our ways. We cannot fault God because his wisdom is greater and his ways are good. Here's a second reality that we see. Not only have we been exposed as people who want things on our own terms, we're ready for a change, but on our terms. Secondly, we see we don't want to be different for God. You look at verses 5 and 19 and 20. What, what is the recurring theme in both of those passages? We want to be like all the nations. I mean, is there anything really new? No. I, we want to fit in. This is not a new concept. Parents, be relieved, if it is a relief, that your kids are just like every generation before them. They want to fit in with their friends. We don't want to be different for God. Deuteronomy 17. If you turn there, I think this is a helpful illumination for us as it relates to this passage. So, Deuteronomy chapter 17, and I'm sorry I didn't look it up to see where that would be in the Bibles provided. But there's a nice index at the front. And maybe you could reach out to someone next to you and they can help you find it. Deuteronomy chapter 17, look at verse 14. When you come to the land, now this is God speaking to Moses on Israel's behalf. This is while they're in the wilderness. When you come to the land that that the Lord your God is giving you and you possess it and dwell in it and then say, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me. You may indeed set a king over you whom the Lord your God will choose. One from among your brothers you shall set as king over you. You may not put a foreigner over you who is not your brother, only he must not acquire many horses for himself or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses, since the Lord has said to you, you shall never return that way again. And he shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away, nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver and gold. And when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law, approved by the Levitical priests, and it shall be with him. And he shall read in it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God By keeping all the words of the law and these statutes and doing them, that his heart may not be lifted up above his brothers, and that he may not turn aside from the commandment either to the right hand or to the left, so that he may continue long in his kingdom, he and his children in Israel. You see, what we're seeing here in Deuteronomy is that this idea of a kingship wasn't a new one, God had already made a provision for it in the law. It wasn't sinful that they asked for a king. The need was real. The problem was their motivations are wrong. Notice what they say in verse 5. We want to be like all the nations. And Deuteronomy chapter 17, if you read through it again this afternoon, I promise you, you will see this clear as day. God wanted Israel's king to not at all be like the kings of the other nations. Don't get for yourself many wives. Don't accumulate horses and chariots. Don't accumulate excessive gold and silver. Don't be proud and lead your people in an abusive, tyrannical way. I want you to have a copy of my law on your nightstand so that every day when you get up and when you go to bed, you are reading it. And you're rehearsing the fact that you are my king. I am king. You are a viceroy. But Israel is determined that they must have a man who looks like all the other nations. They cried out, make us look like the world. We're tired of being a peculiar people. We tend as believers to shrink back from holiness or being distinct according to God's ways. We'd rather be in step with the rest of Rapid City than be different. I remember as a student in college, um, our school was really strict and we had a dress code. I'm thankful that uh, we don't have a dress code here at South Canyon, like please wear clothes, don't misunderstand me, but you're welcome to come as you have, what, whatever you have available, you're not going to get looked down upon, some of us dress up, some of us are a little more casual, and that's okay, but this college I attended had a dress code which inevitably marked every one of its students when they were out in the community. So I'm not exaggerating. I would walk down the sidewalk with my group of friends, and because we had to wear khakis and a collared shirt, you you stood out compared to people in shorts and flip-flops or jeans or whatever. And people knew that in the community, and there was a lot of scoffing and slurs. Hey, Bible thumper. They'd scream out some other not-so-friendly things. And you kind of shrunk back from that as a student. Like, it was kind of like do you really want the headache of going off campus and getting that kind of garbage just because you have to dress and everybody knows you're from Maranatha? I get it. Why is it that God expects his people to be different from non-Christians? Why should God's people be sexually pure? Why should we be honest? And that when we talk with people, our conversations are not coarse, crass, rude, but they're pure and clean and uplifting? Why should Christians who are married be faithful to their spouses? Why should we choose to worship and serve God rather than entertain ourselves and seek our own pleasure? Why, why is Christianity the way it is? let me answer that. Israel's uniqueness was not inherent to the people of Israel. Their great, 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 great granddaddy, Abraham, was an idolater. He was from Ur of Chaldea. He he was of no great pedigree. God chose him and made a promise to him. He believed that promise, and God declared him righteous. He trusted the word of God. Yet here we find his descendants don't. We also are reminded that Israel wasn't unique because of anything she'd done, as God says right here in verse 7 and 8 and 9. She has been trouble from the day I saved her from Egypt. What Israel was unique, uh, the reason Israel was unique, uh, the reason Israel was unique was because of her God. God. You see, God and what he had done for her, he had redeemed her in such a way as we saw in chapter 7 and as we saw earlier in chapter 4 and 5, is that Israel's rescue from slavery in Egypt was so earth-shattering, so abnormal from what normally takes place that the nations of the earth knew of this. They knew Israel's God was someone and something to be feared. So Christians, we are not called to be different for the sake of being different. There's this whole sub-market of influencers, right? You can do nothing but have a nice uh, web camera and good lighting in your bedroom, and next thing you know, you're making and bank, and uh, you are a social influencer and in all the likes and all the followers. We are not to be different as Christians for the sake of being different or to be influencers, we are called to live in a way that reflects God's holiness. You see, Jesus took on our sin, as Paul writes in Titus 2, to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Thus, Peter picks this up in 1 Peter 2.9. We are a chosen people a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that we would proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Christian, here's why we're different, because God has saved us. God has saved us, and now he has called us to look like him, to be distinct from the world. It's not about us. It's about us embracing our calling, not us fitting in or feeling shamed or embarrassed because people say things about us. Friend, if you're visiting with us this morning and by your own confession, you're you're not a Christian, let me first thank you for being here and state for the record that everyone else in this room has failed to pursue God's holiness at many times and in many ways. So you are not unique. The members of South Canyon have confessed their sins to God and asked for his forgiveness and cleansing. And we, as members of this church, rest in God's promise to forgive us our sins due to Jesus' work because he did live a sinless life. He gave his life as a ransom for our own And God poured out his wrath on a sin, all sin, that was laid on Jesus. And God did this in order to save us. He punished his son for sinners like you and me. And then God raised Jesus to to prove his victory over sin and death and to make him the true king that we have been singing about, the king of this world And then God, in His grace, has given us through His Spirit the power to obey His word and to live holy lives. This is the Christian's reality. If we fail to obey God, and you have no doubt seen Christians who have failed to obey God, it's not God's fault, it's ours. This is what it means to be a Christian it means to confess your sins. To trust in Jesus for the forgiveness of those sins. It means to cry out for mercy that is not earned and owed, but is given. And it means to walk as one who is redeemed, to be distinct. And so, friend, thank you for coming this morning. And let me just say this very simply. We sincerely invite you to trust in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins to have your conscience cleansed and to receive the peace of God that passes all understanding as you are made new in Christ this is something I'd be happy to talk with you about afterward any of the ushers that are by the doors they would be happy to point you out to an elder in our church we want this is why we want to make this clear as we look To this second point that we have just completed, we see that God um, has shown us not only are we willing to seek our own way, ready for a change, but that we are also, we don't want to be different for God. We would much rather fit in. Now let's see the third and final truth that this passage exposes about our character. It's seen in verses 11 through 18 and verses 21 through 22, and it's this. We don't like to hear the truth. It's a hard word we've been hearing this morning. And we don't often like to hear the hard word. Samuel didn't like what Israel asked of him. But he took it to the Lord in prayer. And did you notice what God told Samuel to do? He said, do what they ask after you warn them what it's going to be like. And I don't know if you noticed, as you read through this passage this week, how many times Samuel said, the king will take this from you. Did you notice that? You'll see it in verse 11, 13, 14, 15, 16, and 17 in the ESV. Over and over again, he says, guys, do you really know what this is going to cost you? He's going to take your sons. He's going to use them as soldiers. He's going to take your daughters. He's going to make them work for him. He's going to take the best of your hard work, the crops, the produce of your lands. He's going to take money from you. He's going to take your flocks and your herds. Finally, All that's left, it's like the reverse of what happened in Egypt. Remember when there was the famine and Joseph took money from people and then after they ran out of money in the next year, family, he took their crops. Then the next year it was their land. And then they said, what else do we have to give you, Joseph? We need food. We will be Pharaoh's slaves. This is happening for God's people who were promised they would never be slaves again if they would follow God. Don't you see this? Israel failed to connect the dots for hundreds of years now. They have been oppressed by neighboring kings, and they cried out to God for deliverance, and God raised up judges to rescue them. But now by choosing a king for themselves, they forfeit the right to ask God to deliver them from oppressive kings in verse 18. When we reject God as our king... And we substitute him for anything else. That thing becomes our hope and our salvation. It's your health. It's your career. It's your bank account. It's your family. It's your friends. Whatever that substitute is for Jesus, when you make that transition and you trust in that thing, and that thing fails you, who do you have to appeal to? you will never be left shorthanded by God. Never. In the 450 years since God rescued them from Egypt, Israel never had the grounds to doubt God's care and providence. Not once. He met their need in the wilderness and in the promised land. He made his people flourish. He gave them sons and daughters so that they truly did become like the sands of the sea. Innumerable. He blessed the womb. We see this as Samuel opens and Hannah is given a son. A barren woman is given a son because of God's grace. King Yahweh gave land to his people that they could work and benefit from. He didn't extort or extract labor from his people for his own profit. King Yahweh gave good gifts instead of taking the best. He protects for the glory of his name. He's just and generous to his people. Even though they are his servants, his yoke is easy and his burden is light. God is impartial. He gave reign to the just and the unjust. In summary, what we see here, Israel is walking away from a God that is holy and just and merciful, a God who gives good things, and they want to trade that all for a human who if they would just look around at the kings around them, if they would even look at the judges that God had raised up. I mean, look at Samuel. Great guy, but his sons do not walk in his ways. Now you're going to give a king even more power, and you're going to expect to get better results than what God could give you. It's, it's just astounding that they don't want to hear the truth. Comparing the rule of God to the rule of man is like comparing life to a rock. They have nothing in common. And God is so much better. You might have missed this, but this is the first time from chapter 3 and verse 19 to this point that the people reject God's word from Samuel. If you go back to chapter 3 and verse 19, what do we read there? that that the Lord revealed himself to Samuel at Shiloh. God established him as a prophet. As Samuel grew and the Lord was with him and let none of his words fall to the ground, and all Israel from Dan to Beersheba knew that Samuel was a prophet of the Lord. But they say to the prophet who's warning them, guys, there's still time to turn from this. They say, no, 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 no. You don't understand. We're done listening to your voice, Samuel. You listen to ours. Luther, in the Reformation, was calling the church to pay attention to God's word because it had become so corrupt. The church had become overlaid God's word with all the human traditions, all the man-made thinking, and they had created a false gospel. And Luther saying, what we need to do is go back to the truth of God's word. I mean, is it any surprise that that was the need in 1517? Is that any surprise that it is the need today in 2022? It was the same need that God's people had way back here in 1100 B.C. We need to hear from God and then we need to obey God. Israel rejected God's wisdom. They demanded their folly. I remember as a kid um, two slogans from PBS. We didn't have cable, so we had broadcast TV And one of them was, knowledge is power. You ever heard that one? And then the other one is, the more you read, the more you know. Both statements are true in part. But knowledge alone can't change us. Knowledge has to be applied in our lives. Knowledge has to be applied in our circumstances. It's like what we read in James chapter 2 and verses 14 through 26, where the pastor of the church in Jerusalem points out that Christians can't unhitch the wagon of good works and a godly faith. They're not two separate entities, and you can abandon one and hold to the other. They have to be coupled together. We who know God must respond in obedience to him. We cannot separate what he has called us to be, distinct from the world, holy from believing truth. These people had God's word. They had the law. We are told that God spoke to them through his prophet. They had revelation. They were the descendants of those very same people who walked across the dry seabed, later a dry riverbed. And no doubt many of these same people in chapter 8 were eyewitnesses of what took place in chapter 7. Yet they refuse to submit to God's word, and they prove yet again how stubborn they are. You see, their firsthand knowledge of the Holy One of Israel didn't lead to transformation. Instead, they resisted to their own peril. Proverbs 12.15 says, The way of a fool is right in his own eyes. We see that here, right? But a wise man listens to advice. Let me just say, this morning, we have heard, we began with the observation that God exposes us for who we really are. We may be ready for a change, and I would say, don't make changes for your own way and for your own desires. We, we may struggle with being different for the Lord, but let me just say, don't lay down that responsibility, Christian, Follow your king. We may not like to hear God's truth, but we always hear truth from God. He is not lying to us to take advantage of us. He is not buttering us up. He is not trying to be nice to us to not hurt our feelings. He always speaks the truth to his people so that he can bring about godly repentance, godly faith, godly attitudes, actions, and corrections. So let me conclude with this. How should we respond when we are exposed for who we are? By acknowledging our sin and seeking God's forgiveness? By turning from trusting in poor substitutes and waiting on the Lord?